How y'all feeling? You good? All right. Just got back from camping with my family yesterday, just in time for a wedding. Um, okay, this is this is happening. I'm, I'm scanning, scanning, scanning. Alex and Marion, where there there they are. There they are. Alex, Marion, little shout out. Got married yesterday. Yeah, that was fun. You know who really loves Jesus when they show up to church the day after their wedding? (laughs) Heading off to the honeymoon immediately after the service. I'm happy. Okay, good. Excellent. Um, Yeah, but anyways, I'm feeling good. Uh, A little bit tired. The camping trip was great. Have you guys ever been to Cape Lookout? Just past Tillamook? It's beautiful. Don't go. It's our spot. (laughs) This is becoming our family tradition a lot of fun. Where's my lovely wife? There you are. How you feeling, Shirley? You good? <laughs> Something about going on quote-unquote vacation with a 10, 8, and 6-year-old. Just, I don't know, it's not, restful's not quite the word for it. Fun, fun, not restful. But I'm glad to be here. Uh, guys, we, if you heard last week, we covered the, 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 the final portion of Mark, the gospel according to Mark. Now, we call it the final portion or the finale, if you will, because um, it, it would seem, if you're, if you're reading Mark, like all of the gospel writers, uh, he, he has a voice. You're like, oh, this, is, this is the author of Mark, presumably Mark, some debate about that. Um, but he has a voice, he has a certain kind of vocabulary, there's a particular style of grammar that he uses throughout the book. And then in chapter 16, there seems to be a bit of a, a closure at the end of verse 8. Um, but if, if you're tracking along in, a, in an actual Bible and not just looking up there, you'll notice uh, that it, it keeps going. And there's actually another 12 verses but it's usually like, like double bracketed with a footnote and then a bit of a disclaimer at the bottom of the page saying that uh, there's some debate among scholars and, and Bible nerds as to whether or not the last 12 verses of Mark, chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, actually like belong in the text. Controversial, right? Have you ever come across this? So a couple of you, some of you are like, okay, this is, I'm about to have a crisis of faith. What, what do you mean is it supposed to be there? It's in print. It's in my Bible. What's the problem? Well, no problem, really. Um, it just, there's, there's some controversy about this little last bit, the alternative ending of Mark, if you will. It's kind of like one of those movies where there's like this alternative ending or perhaps like the, the, the bonus ending after the credits. And it's like, oh, is this really part of it? Is it not? We can debate all about it. Anyway, we're going to work our way through the epilogue of Mark, the final 12 verses, the controversial ending of Mark. How does that sound? Are you intrigued? Let's do it. If you have a Bible, go ahead and flip it open to Mark chapter 16. And as always, we'll have the text up there as well. Let me start my timer. Now, when he, that is Jesus, rose early on the first day of the week, he peered first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. Verse 12, after these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest but they did not believe them. Verse 14. Afterward, he appeared to the 11 themselves. Remember, Judas has bailed. He appeared to the 11 themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them 
for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. And they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he'd spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Amen. Let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be our teacher this morning. Even as we look to these words that you have authored. That you would open up our hearts and our minds to receive from you. That we would hear your voice and that we would come to know you even better. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's begin by just considering for a second the, the controversy. As I mentioned just a moment ago, there, there is, there's debate. I, I think virtually, with maybe the exception of the RSV, all of the, the like legitimate Bible translations will, will include some sort of footnote that nine through 20, verses nine through 20, what we've just read, there's some question whether or not do, is this, does this actually, were these the original words of the writer of Mark? Um, if so, why do they seem slightly out of place? Um, why does it appear as if perhaps they were added later? Um, is it a problem? Does it make a difference? Um, and what is the debate really? Well, it's not difficult. You can, anyone can go online and Google it. So I'll, I'll just kind of give you a quick summary of like what, what is the debate. Essentially, these final 12 verses of Mark have existed in our Bibles as we know them today, the canon, if you will, for virtually the last 2,000 years. I mean, all the way back up to like early first century stuff. In fact, some of the earliest uh, like patristic writers, the, the quote-unquote fathers of the church, like people like Irenaeus and Tertullian, and we, we have these ancient letters, copies of letters that they wrote to other Christians and other churches back in the first, second, third, fourth, fifth century, and some of the earliest patristic writers actually reference these verses that we just read. So it would seem like even if these were some sort of later addition to Mark, um, they've definitely been around like since the inception of the church. These aren't words that were like tacked on last year. Now, up until maybe 100 years ago or so, there was really no um, debate. No one really contested whether or not these words belonged um, however you felt about their, whether or not they were congruent or they belonged, they felt like they flowed. They, they've just always been there. Um, until a couple of the ancient manuscripts. In fact, two of the oldest manuscripts that we, we have, we're talking like original Greek copies of the New Testament, specifically Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus. So Vaticanus was this like ancient Greek manuscript that was dug up in the library in the Vatican. Vatican. That's why it's called the Codex Vaticanus. It's like an old codex, it's like a book. And they dug this thing, they found it back in the 15th century. You know libraries old when they're like doing archeological digs in the library itself. And they find this old Greek manuscript and they date it. They do the, the, the scientific work of like, 
ascertaining whether or not is this a legitimate thing? Is it bogus? Is it, is it actually as old as we think it is? And sure enough, it all checks out. And this ancient manuscript doesn't include the last 12 verses of Mark. And that's where the footnote comes from. They're like, oh my goodness, this is the oldest Greek manuscript we have found today. It dates back to early fourth century and it doesn't contain Mark. Now here's the twist. I love this. Here's the twist. As you're, you're looking through, you can actually like, they have high def pictures of this online. But as you're looking through the Greek manuscripts, every time the scribe gets to the end of one book and on to the next one, there's literally no gap. They'll just kind of go to the next column and they continue on like that until they get to Mark. Mark ends at chapter 16, verse 8, and then there's a big blank in the page. Like the whole column is just left blank and then begins Luke. And it doesn't do that any other place in the entire manuscript. It's like weird, right? So here we have manuscript evidence for someone who might want to argue that the last 12 verses that we've just read of Mark don't belong because they're not actually in the oldest manuscript we have. But what's up with the blank column? It was like the scribe was doing his job, doing due diligence, copying word to word. I mean, this, this was an exact science. They're copying, copying, copying. And they get to the last 12 verses of Mark. And it's almost as if someone taps them on the shoulder and says, Mm-mm-mm. Leave those 12 verses out. They're contested. Okay, but I'm going to leave a blank just in case someone changes their mind. (laughs) Isn't that like the weirdest thing ever? So what do you do with that? What do you do with that? Um, I think it's important to think about for a couple of reasons. One, it says something about how we view the Bible. This ancient book that we refer to as the Holy Bible, the Word of God, it's not as like squeaky clean as perhaps we would like to think of it. The Bible, unlike other religious texts, quite a few of them out there, did not simply descend from heaven in leather-bound form. It just didn't. It wasn't found in a cave someplace on golden tablets. It It wasn't transcribed word for word by someone receiving signals from outer space. Okay, this book, which I absolutely believe is the word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, authored by God himself, came to us in its current form in a really, in a very human fashion. This book has the fingerprints of man and God all over it. It's almost like the word of God became flesh. God the divine entered into humanity and got in the mess and began to speak and teach and heal and set free. Tell us something with authority about what God is like. And it wasn't given to us in pamphlet form. It was given to us in an actual life, an actual human life. And then God saw to it that that life and those teachings and the history and the miracles and all that happened leading up to, around, and since the person and life of Jesus was recorded in a way that we can be sure that what we're holding today is nothing short of an absolute miracle. Because here's the other thing. So the first thing is that it says something about how this book came to us, the nature of it, how God actually communicates with human beings. But the second thing is this. It's, it reminds us that 
following Jesus is so much more than just a matter of adhering to like a set of ideological bullet points. It's not just here's the information, understand it well enough, believe it with all your might, and and then you're good. It's much more dynamic than that. There's something very, very messy about how God entered into creation and began to commune with us. It's always been so much more than just a book or an an ideology that you may or may not subscribe to. It's, It's a life. And when we read the words on this page, which is why we always invite the Holy Spirit, speak to us now. Lord Jesus, you're present with us. Why don't you open our hearts and enliven the words on this page so that we're not just, we don't just leave here thinking about them. Well, we would do, but then we would actually participate in this life. And to me, that's just, I'll sign up for that. I would die for that. I would follow that Jesus not just the historical figure that passed down some teachings, but the living God who invites us to participate. And he does that largely through his word. Anyways, we that just kind of, I'm just stirring the pot, guys. I'm just stirring the pot. Some of you are like, I kind of like that. I kind of like that. Others of you are like, I don't like that. This is way too subjective. That's That's our Bible. That's our Bible. That's the footnote. Guys, that's, that's just, deal with it. I can remember the first time I was reading some Lee Strobel. Guys, if you ever want to get, some, get in some good apologetics, get yourself some Lee Strobel, like Case for Christ. One of his, his, his most later books was The Case for the Real Jesus. I remember reading Lee Strobel's A Case for the Real Jesus. And he started talking about this like footnote phenomenon in the Bible. And he was talking about in John, there's this amazing story about Jesus coming to the woman who was caught in adultery. You know that one? I love that one. And I'm reading this book by Lee Strobel and he's talking about how you know there's actually a footnote attached to that story. The oldest manuscripts that we have don't include it. And I'm like, what? No. <laughs> but, but what are the implications? And I had, I had a slight crisis of faith because I'm like, whoa, okay, this... I don't know what to do with that. And I, I prayed a lot. And I realized, like, look, Jesus is, he's alive. And continuing to tell his story as we engage with him in his word. Okay, anyways, pot, pot stirred. I'm just saying, that's what it is. Um, now, let's, let's, let's think about these 12 verses. Here's the other thing. I, I love that there is a bit of controversy about it because it makes me want to just figure out like, well, what, what is it with these 12 verses? If there's a conspiracy, like I want, to, I want to read the 12 verses. Like if someone's trying to keep these things out of Holy Scripture, I'm going to memorize these 12 verses. So let's dig in. Um, okay, first of all, a few things. Verse 9, we begin with Jesus appearing to Mary Magdalene, who he set free in this radical way. He appears to Mary Magdalene, and then she goes immediately to tell the others, those who are weeping and mourning, presumably Peter and probably his companions, because we're told explicitly that he, after denying Jesus three times, just broke down weeping and ran off. Okay, so she goes and tells the others and they refuse to believe. Verse 12, then we're told after that, Jesus appeared in another form, which I find intriguing. And they go immediately and also tell the rest. So he appears to two other. This is probably the two men that Luke talks about. Luke chapter 24, he talks about the two individuals walking down the road to Emmaus. And Jesus appears to them, but they don't recognize him because he's in another form. Except when they sit down over a meal 
And it said it was during the breaking of bread, all of a sudden their hearts began to burn within them. And they realize this is Jesus, and then he vanishes. Bizarre moment. And they get up and they run back to Jerusalem. They tell the others. It's probably Luke 24. Verse 14, after that, Jesus appeared to the 11 themselves. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had arisen. A couple of things. Number one, Jesus there's a clear pattern here. Jesus appears, and what happens next? They go. Jesus appears to Mary. Immediately she sees him, and she goes and tells the other. Jesus appears to the two, and immediately they go and tell the others. Now Jesus appears to the disciples, and what does he do? He tells them off for not believing those whom he's already sent to inform them that, hey, it's just as I told you. I've conquered death, I'm alive. Um, We've gotta get the scene though here. There's a a word here that really jumps off of the page. Um, It says Jesus rebukes his disciples for not believing the eyewitnesses. Um, The word is, I'm not a real Greek guy, but it's onediso. Onediso is the word, the Greek word for he rebuked them. Mark only uses it one other time in his entire gospel. It's in Mark chapter 15. It's the word he uses when he's talking about the two men, the robbers who were being crucified on either side of Jesus. And it said that they reviled Jesus. That's onadiso. Jesus rocks up, the 11 are huddled together, and he reviles them for not believing the eyewitness testimony. It's pretty harsh. Like he tells them off. How about that? And then he says, believe. Believe and go tell the world. Clear pattern emerges. Believe, Jesus appears, believe, go and tell others. Um, How do you feel about Jesus telling off the disciples for not believing? Let's do a raise of hands. You're like, I like that Jesus. Some of you are like, that's, I I like the nicer Jesus. (laughs) He appeared to Mary, he appeared to the two and they believed. The 11, they had to go on like the second-hand account. Like, no, well, we didn't actually see him, but we heard, twice actually, that he is alive. I don't know, I kind of got to see him for myself. Jesus' feelings about that, he's like, no, y'all should have believed. I'm reviling you now. I'm telling you off. You should have believed. He said, enough unbelief. Enough hardness of heart. I am alive. Now go. Tell the world. I have to to tell you. I love the way Mark. It just constantly. I personally believe that these last 12 verses are absolutely authentic and, and belong here. Whether the actual words of Mark or not, I don't care. It doesn't really matter to me. To me, I'm like, this absolutely fits in. If there was ever an epilogue of one of the gospels, this is it for sure. Because Mark from the beginning is taking us on this journey. Remember how many times we come into like a situation and Jesus, he's, he's talking about hardness of heart. It's usually the Pharisees the religious elite. And they refuse to believe that Jesus is who he claims to be even when they see the miracles, healing, people being set free, demons being cast out. Like they are witnessing this stuff but they would refuse to believe because of their hardness of heart. It says something about the nature of believing. There comes a point when I believe we've been given all of the information 
that we need to either believe or not believe. And it really becomes less a matter of like, I don't have enough information yet. I need to spend five more hours Googling this and then maybe I can make an informed decision. It becomes less that and more like, no, no, you know what you need to know. We're at the end of the story. You've seen everything that needs to be seen. You've heard everything. The eyewitness testimony is more than enough. Your problem is your heart is hard. Your heart is hard. And you need to knock it off. And trust me, that's, 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 that's the tone, I believe, of Jesus rebuking his disciples. Enough's enough. You're scared. I get it. This is super inconvenient for you. I get it. You're mourning. I get it. Your world has been rocked. I get it. This is super hard. Knock it off and let's go change the world together. Enough of this hardness of heart. You know I am who I claim to be. Now believe and let's go change the world. So at this point in the story, the end of the story, you know what we're being presented with? This is Mark is so much less about what exactly am I meant to be thinking about and believing? That, that almost becomes like the assumption. Like Mark's like, we're at the end of the story. Either you believe or you don't believe. But you're gonna have to make a choice. But just realize you have all of the information necessary. The issue could be your own heart. It could be pride, it could be fear, it could be hardness. But I'm telling you, you need to believe now. And Mark becomes less about what I need to be thinking about and where are we going? Where are we going? Remember at the very beginning of the book, Mark chapter one, do you remember how it starts out? Probably not. I had, I had, to, I had to thumb back myself. Mark chapter one, verses 14 through 17. This is the very beginning. Now after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the gospel. Believe what exactly? I would, want, I, I would be asking for a pamphlet at that, that point. Like, believe what, Jesus? Is there a course I can attend? Is there... Can I get a, a, an audio recording? Like what, what exactly? He doesn't even say, he just says, believe the gospel. Believe the good news. The good news what? The good news is the kingdom is near. The king is on the scene. Everything is going to change. But I don't understand. I know you don't understand. You won't understand until I, I die and come back from the dead. But what does he say next? He says, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he sees, he sees Simon and his brother Andrew, Casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. In other words, Jesus almost assumes belief. He commands belief. I'm here. The kingdom is at hand. I want you to trust me and follow me. We're going to go change the world. Who's in? And they drop their nets, and they go and follow Jesus. Mark begins by saying, look, it, yes, is, is faith an essential ingredient in knowing, trusting, following, obeying, experienced life of Jesus? Of course, but it's almost like a given. Like Jesus commands us to believe him from the very outset. But by the, we get, by the time we get to the end, the question isn't whether or not do you believe, Mark expects us to believe. The question is, will you go? Will you follow me? Will you participate in my mission? Because we got a whole world to tell who wants in. You want in? I want in. Lily's, Lily's in, getting choked up here. Okay, so let me ask you this. How do you feel about becoming a fisher of men? 
Yeah? Fisher of men and women, I should clarify. You're in. Anyone feel weirded out by it? Anyone? I, okay, I'll, let me tell you this quick story. I was invited to um, help teach a, a little class at Grace City in Corvallis. This was like when, when Shirley and I were living there for that one year. They have an amazing nine-month program called Grace City University. And I was attending it slash kind of helping to lead certain, certain nights. And one of the nights, um, the pastor there said, hey, I'd love you to teach the course on evangelism. I'm like, sweet. That sounds amazing. And it's, it's like one of these church courses for people who are like really gung-ho about Jesus. And so I, I go in there thinking like, this is going to be great. Like, I'm just going to like, yeah, guys, we should just tell the world and who's with me, rah, rah, rah. And I was shocked at how after I'd done my little initial teaching on what evangelism is and, and, and why it's a good idea, I was immediately met with like dirty looks and one person raising their hand saying, I find this whole subject of telling the quote unquote lost about Jesus to be offensive and degrading. I was like, where am I again? <laughs> I'm just assuming we're all down with the Jesus thing here. Like, like this, is, this is a good thing, right? And it reminded me, reminded me number one, what planet I'm living on um, and what corner of the planet we're living in. And I realized like, oh yeah, okay, uh, that's right. Even people who are Christians say, look, I'm, I love Jesus. I believe in Jesus. Um, but I'm not, don't. Don't tell me to go accost someone with my faith. Okay, I don't want to like lose friends and start another like ideological street fight as if Portland needs more of that. And people get like a little put off by this idea of like, let's go tell the world. I mean, even just the word evangelism, it's like, <sighs> it just sounds offensive. Why is that? Fear? I, I, will, I will say this. So fear for sure. I'll be the first one to admit it. Like when it comes to actually just telling people about my relationship with Jesus, my, my gut level emotion is usually just timidity, fear, slight, slightly embarrassed. And then I get super introspective and I think, why? Like what's, am I ashamed of the gospel? And, and or is it, is it somehow demonic? Is, is there something else going on that just wants to kind of like get in my head every time I think about actually telling someone the good news about Jesus? But on a purely emotional level, yeah, I, I fear is probably my, my first feeling, which I hate. Can anyone relate? Do I ever feel that way? Yeah, Okay. Um, has anyone ever been on the receiving end of evangelism done really badly? So Peter, he writes a couple of letters to the church. First Peter chapter three, verse 15, he says, be prepared to give a defense for the hope that you have within you. Only do it with gentleness and respect. There's a whole world of brothers and sisters out there who need to memorize those words, gentleness and respect. Because I've absolutely been accosted by well-meaning brothers and sisters thinking that somehow it's like if they don't bludgeon me with the gospel, then, then they don't like really love Jesus. I remember before I was a Christian being on the receiving end of that and thinking like, oh, why, why are you even doing this? Have you ever been in that conversation where someone's trying to convince you of something and you immediately get the feeling that like you're not, you, it sounds to me like you're trying to convince yourself more than you are me. Like this is just like insecurity manifesting in my face. And it's super unpleasant. And that's real. That's real. I don't believe that Jesus is asking us to do that. So why should we go and tell the world? If this is where Mark ends, Jesus said to obedience. Mm -hmm, that's a great reason. I would also add, 
it's really good news. It's good news. It's not bad news. It's not annoying news. It could be offensive. That's a hard issue. But it's good news. It is good news. Jesus referred to it as good news. What is the good news? The good news is that the new kingdom is coming. That's what he said in Mark 1. He said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Repent means turn from living this way and finding your identity in this old dying, corrupt, condemned kingdom and experience new life in my family, in my world, my new system, my kingdom. The good news is is that my kingdom is touching down. It's breaking in. The king is here. The good news is is that King Jesus has made a way for anyone, anyone who's interested, anyone who's willing to die to themselves in this old system, this old corrupt condemned kingdom, and join him in this new kingdom. He's made a way for it to be possible. Like that's really good news. Jesus died on the cross that I could experience new life, a new identity, a new heart, new motives, new desires, new courage, new love for the people around me. When Jesus said, love your enemies, he wasn't just waxing spirituality. He was saying, in my kingdom, I'm setting up a new economy, a new way of thinking and viewing the world around you. And it's not just an idea. It's not just a bullet point list of doctrinal details that I need you to memorize and embrace. I'm inviting you to participate, which means I'm going to fill you with my spirit. I'm gonna, my kingdom's going to break out in your heart so that you can actually love your enemies like I've loved you. You can actually experience the desire, the overwhelming desire that would compel one to go out and tell the world about how good this good news truly is. Amen. Amen. Number two, it's really important news. It's truly good news and it's important news. The proclamation is a pressing matter. In verse 16, chapter 16, verse 16, Jesus said, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Quick note on baptism. He says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe, emphasis on believe, emphasis on trusting Jesus, baptism being an outworking of that, will be saved. Those who refuse to believe will be condemned. In other words, if you refuse to leave this old kingdom and join King Jesus in the new kingdom that's breaking in, you're gonna go, you're gonna go down with this old one. Okay. Let me put it this way. The choice is dire. The choice is dire. On an eternal uh, scale, either... You will go to hell in this kingdom or you will spend eternity in heaven with Jesus in this kingdom. Now, as, even the, as the words come out of my mouth, I think, oh my gosh, that's so awkward. <sighs> so awkward. If you refuse to trust Jesus, and join his family and become a part of his kingdom. You will be condemned to hell and the one that's dying. Elsewhere in the New Testament, they, they, they put it this way, you already stand condemned. It's not that God wants to like beat you to oblivion and, 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 and somehow like he's just so mad at you, this is how he's gonna like vent his, his anger. No, no, we, we're born into a broken kingdom. All you gotta do is look around. It's, it's, it's crumbling all around us. And as hard as we try, 
to build back up the kingdom of humanity and the kingdom of religion and the kingdom of my brilliance and my empire. As hard as we try, it just keeps crumbling. It's like the metropolis uh, that my, my kids and I at Cape Lookout, we built a metropolis. Uh, Judah calls it the metropopopolis because I'm Papa and I'm an expert at building these amazing sandcastles, but no matter what, the tide keeps coming which is really why it's so fun to build these things because you, know, you wanna see, can we build it and make it last? Not this kingdom, not this life, not this world. It's going to come down every time. That's why the good news is Jesus has come to rescue us. Say, look, there's another way, there's another kingdom, there's another life. There's an eternity to enjoy living the life that we were created for in the first place. It's about reconciliation. It's about forgiveness. It's about, it's about loving each other the way God loves us. It's about sacrifice. It's about joy. It's about freedom. It's about healthy relationships. It's about eternity and being a part of the kingdom that will last. And so it's a, it's a pressing matter. It's an important message that the whole world needs to hear. Number three, it's the key to spiritual growth. It's less me and more about others. It's less talk and it's more action. It's less, let me just see how much information I can cram in my brain versus how much can I actually go out and apply this in the way I'm loving others and inviting others to experience for themselves this wonderful family of God. You know, in Capernaum, or in Mark chapter one, when Jesus begins his teaching ministry in Capernaum, it says the first thing that he does after he's called the disciples to follow him, he says he's gonna make them become fishers of men. He says, let's go. What's the first thing that he does? preaches a sermon, then he begins to cast out demons in a synagogue and heal people. Like from the very outset, it's this idea of, we, I mean, look at us. I've said this before. I'm, I'm a, I, I promise you if there was ever a self-loathing preacher, I'm, I'm one. Because I get, I get in these, these modes of thinking like, look at, we don't need to talk about, there's nothing left to talk about. There's nothing left to talk about. We finished Mark. I'm gonna go home and read my Bible. You're gonna go home and read your Bible. And I'm gonna listen to my favorite podcast. And we're gonna come back here and we're gonna do church and it's gonna be awesome. And I want you to come back. But we gotta go, guys. We gotta go. We've gotta tell the world. We've gotta demonstrate to like the human beings out there that the kingdom is coming and Jesus is alive and he's giving us the opportunity to be a part of the most exciting thing we could do with our lives on planet Earth. And it's how we grow up. It's how we grow up. Number four, it's incredibly exciting. Verse 20, it says, they went out the disciples went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. How cool is that? You go and you tell whoever, however. It doesn't really even matter, by the way. It doesn't matter. Some of you say, like, I'm just, I'm not good with the words. I struggle with the words. I get it. I get it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You, you tell your story. You tell God's story, your story, how the story's intertwined, who you once were and who you now are, and how Jesus is just the hero of it all. Then he'll work with you. That's exciting. That's fun. You could like, now I'll be honest with you. I do get a little weirded out about like the snake and the poison thing. It's like, hey, can I tell you my testimony? Oh yeah, cool, let's share our own here. Hold my snake, by the way. 
Here, wash it down with some poison. <laughs> what is that? What is that? Okay, I will say this. So in Acts, there was an actual, there was a specific instance where Paul gets bitten by a poisonous viper and all the villagers are like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, you're gonna die. And he lives and next thing you know, they're like worshiping him as a god. Like it's a sign, like look, something's going on here. This is more than just like the latest spiritual fad. Okay, Jesus is among his people working. We get to pray for people. We get to come up against spiritual forces of wickedness as we pray. We can ask God to like fight for us. We don't have to just sort of stand back and kind of hold on. We get to get in the fight. And I've said this before, I have never been in a fight in my life. I used to feel like kind of like embarrassed about that. Now I'm really glad. I, don't, I, don't, I have no interest in being in a fight. I learned how to fight. You know who taught me how to fight? My wife. Not like physically. Although my wife is strong. There's something in the South African water. I promise you. She's strong. But I had to learn how to fight if I wanted to stay married. Because... Um, our marriage is a gift from God. And, uh, and if I want to make it last, I, I had to learn how to fight. So I began to learn how to fight in prayer. And I began to realize that the more I trusted God and obeyed Jesus and, and actively sought out ways to participate in the work that he's doing in people's lives all around me, it was, it was like a full-on brawl. Knock down, drug out, bare knuckle, fight with the devil, sort of life that I was signing up for. But here's the cool thing. In Christ, I am more than a conqueror through him who strengthens me. We get to fight and win. That's, that's being alive. Lastly, and then we're gonna end. Five reasons to go and tell the world. Number five, it's of eternal value. It's of lasting significance. Isn't it true? Hannah, do you want to come on up, bring the team up? Isn't it true that we're living in a world that is starved for significance? Isn't that true? We're desperately looking for ways to do something with our lives that will help us to feel like this is actually worthwhile. Like I feel purposeful about this time that I'm investing in this thing. I feel like this degree, this job, these things that I'm pursuing, this work that I'm putting in, this marriage, this family, this fighting is actually worth something. And of course, we're constantly being pulled this way and that, and, and we're tempted to, tempted to find significance you know, in the online phenomena, the likes, and the yada, 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 and we've all heard it before, and we're sick of it, but we keep getting drugged back into it, and we try to find significance in all of these temporal things, not evil things per se, but just things that aren't actually going to last. And eventually, hopefully, we grow up enough to realize that family is actually a really big deal. Relationships are actually a really big deal. And on an eternal scale, there's really nothing that's more important than who we're going to spend eternity with in heaven. It's people, it's relationships, it's love. The reason why I feel compelled, convicted most often, to tell the world about this good news, this urgent, pressing, important news about Jesus, who he is and what he's done for us, is because I realized in life, it's about people. It's about our relationships. It's not about me accosting people with my ideology. Let's so not do that. But let's tell people the good news. So as best as I can, this, is, this, this was my, guys, let's, let's be a church on mission speech. 
it's, it's hard. I, I can't for the life of me think of a, of a morning that I've, I've woken up in years where I thought, you know what, today I'm going to like just, mm, I'm going to get out on the streets and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share the gospel with someone. Like I've, it would be wonderful to wake up with that like natural, I mean, there's maybe one or two of you in this room that wake up that way. You're like, man, I'm just going to get someone today. I'm going to go, I'm going to go to work. I'm, gonna, I'm, you know, I'm just praying, I'm waiting for it. I don't ever feel that way. I'm like, God, I'd love to feel that way. It's one of the most beautiful feelings ever. Amen. So here's my point. Here's my point. What do, where do we go from here? What do we do with this? I want to make it really, really simple. One, I hope, that, I hope that you can see that, yeah, this is what Jesus has invited us to. Not just to believe something like in some sort of cerebral sense. Yes, believe, obviously. And then let's go. I want us to be open to that. I want us to like embrace that and, and process through all of our hangups about that. I was honest about mine. I get it. But let's not just like stop there. Let's say, okay, Jesus, I've got some hangups about this whole like evangelism thing. Can you help me? That's the first thing. The second thing, there's only two things, is let's start to pray in that direction. If you struggle with this, say, Jesus, help me. I want to go to work with you. Jesus found his deepest satisfaction in going to work with Abba. Going to work with Daddy. Doing his Father's work. Satisfy him like no meal couldn't. Can we begin praying along those lines and say, Lord Jesus, help us, help me to be passionate about the things that you're passionate about. I want to feel what you feel. I would love for my heart to break for broken people out there that you love, who you died for, who you want to be in relationship with. Won't you give me that compassion that I might be like compelled to go out and tell the world? Can we stand together, please? You're now listening to Grace City Portland.